0: you're listening to The Word is Resistance, a podcast exploring what Christian sacred texts have to teach us about surviving, resisting, and thriving in our current context of white supremacist violence, which has existed on American shores for centuries. I want you to know that the music you hear throughout this podcast is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding. It's called We Are Building Up a New World. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, and they're a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014 and is being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We're deeply grateful to the Freeman Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. My name is Margaret Ernst. And I'm recording today from my apartment, from the Cumberland Watershed in the land of the Eastern Cherokee, currently known as Nashville, Tennessee. If you want to know the indigenous land that you live on, you can look at a map at www.native/land.ca. I'm a member of Showing Up for Racial Justice Nashville, and this podcast is a project of Surge Faith surge or showing up for racial justice organizes white people to take bold action against white supremacy. This podcast aims to resource us in this work, which means it's for everyone, but it's geared towards white folks working to build our resistance muscles. We welcome your feedback and especially appreciate feedback from and accountability to listeners of color. I'm recording tonight the night of the State of the Union Address. State of the Union the time when historically presidents review their accomplishments, present their agenda, and are supposed to report out on the life of the nation. As I wait for the speech to start with pouring rain outside and tornado warnings outside my window, I can't help but think about the time that has passed in these two years since Trump came into office. We know that racism and white supremacy is American as apple pie and a poison that runs deep in the soils of this country. Racism has shifted shapes over different eras, but in these past two years, its horrific head has reared in the form of a doubling down of the criminalization of immigrants of color, a doubling down on deportations and detention centers and private prisons, an increase in hate violence, an economy that's getting more and more unequal, leaving poor people and people of color out, not to mention the daily gaslighting and microaggressions that people of color endure every day including in movements for justice and liberation, acts of bias and harm I too am guilty of. I sit and wait for the speech to start and I'm lamenting. And I also can't help but think of what's the state of our resistance to racism. I think about the courage and power of organizers of color in my own community here in Nashville and across the country and even amidst so much despair and disappointment I have about how we as white folks must be doing better, hopeful about signs of white folks waking up to white supremacy and of people coming into movement. Two years into this presidency, what's the state of your resistance? I'd like to start this episode with a meditation on that question. So if you're in a place where you can take a few minutes to be still, Root your feet into the floor and breathe in a big breath. As you settle into your body and breathe in, get a picture in your mind of the long river of history. In that river, now pinpoint your mind and think about when your ancestors got to here to these shores and what chapter they entered into history on this continent what chapter they did they come in on in both the construction of white supremacy and in the struggle against it breathe out breathe in again and this time think about when you first became aware of being raced Of having a race and then your own journey to waking up to the realities of racism in America and your journey to support racial justice. Breathe out. Breathe in and now come into this present moment where you are this week of the State of the Union two years into the Trump presidency. As you feel your breath filling your body, try to breathe in the lessons you've learned in these past two years. What have you learned about racism and how it shifts shape and morphs and grows and responds in different times and eras? What have you learned about yourself and what it means for you to resist and push back against racism? What have you learned from people of color you're in relationship with or work alongside? Breathe out. And as you breathe out, breathe out what you need to leave behind from these past two years. Breathe out what's not serving you in your work for racial justice. Breathe out what's holding you back from being bold against racism. Now breathe in, and this time breathe in what you need to keep going. Breathe in the power, the clarity that you need so that you can reject white supremacy in your being and in the spheres of influence that you have, your family, your social networks, your congregations, the institutions or movements you're a part of. Breathe out. As you move throughout this week, Remember that feeling of what you breathe in to give you strength the next time you are weary, uncertain or fragile. Because the freedom fighter Ella Baker said, we who believe in freedom cannot rest. The text from the Gospels for this week is Luke 5, 1 through 11, and the story is of Jesus on the shores of Lake Gennesaret, among the Galilean fishing villages that were the primary audience of his proclamation of the kingdom of God. Jesus has been teaching people on the shores, and there are so many people who want to hear his message that they're pressing in on him, and so he removes himself from the crowd and goes out on a boat to teach them from there. To get out there, he joins a fisherman, Simon, and he goes out with Simon and takes up his teaching again from the middle of the sea. The real crux of this story is what happens after he's done teaching the crowds. Put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch, Jesus says to Simon. And Simon, who will become his disciple Peter, says basically, come on man, no way. I imagine Simon Peter, bleary-eyed after a night shift, cynical, exhausted, weary. He answers, Teacher, we have worked all night long, but have caught nothing. So I wonder if he casts his net down just so Jesus would stop bothering him, just so the strange man would get out of his boat. Yet if you say so, I will let down the nets, Simon says. What happens next is so astounding that it sends Simon to his knees, confessing about his own brokenness to Jesus, and it makes Simon and everyone else who witnessed it amazed. The net fills up with fish. So many fish that their nets break, and Simon needs to call his co-workers, James and John, to come with their boat. And even with the second boat, there's such an overwhelming bounty of fish that the boats almost sink under the weight of it all. I expect that this was not just amazing but completely chaotic, with James and John and Simon Peter slipping and sliding on the floors of their fishing boats, live fish jumping like moving mountains, while they try to do anything they can to contain the situation and stop the boats from sinking. More fish than they've ever seen in this spot where they've been coming up dry all night. In the midst of all this slipping and sliding and confusion and amazement and chaos, Jesus says, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching people. Before we get to this part about catching people, I want to first talk about these fish. I wonder what this mind blowing image of so many fish that it sinks two boats. I wonder what that would have meant for Jesus's earliest followers. Like so many of the stories told about Jesus, this story places him right in the middle of the lives and the daily dealings of the poor and working folks that he came from, places him in the middle of the mundane material realities of how they make ends meet. Like with any other resource in the Roman Empire, it was not uncommon for the surplus of a Galilean fisherman's daily catch to go to the ruling elite and the brokers who collected tolls to keep the state running and enrich its benefactors. Not unlike our economies that are so stratified by debt today, these fishermen got their rights to fish in harbors by becoming indebted to local brokers. Through many layers of bureaucracy, the tolls they paid ultimately went to the Herodians, the ruling family who constructed the fishing harbors. And who would ultimately oversee Jesus's execution? What's interesting about the translation of this story in Luke is that, unlike the other gospel writers, Luke uses the word "koinonoi" to talk about Simon and John and James' relationship to each other. It means partners or cooperative members, comrades, joint participant. Collectives are a way to share, may have been a way for for them to share what they gained from their labor, a structure very different from the hierarchy of the tribute system in which they existed. If koinonoi sounds familiar, it's because the related word koinoina shows up 19 times in the New Testament, and is often translated as communion or fellowship. It's the basis for the Christian concept of Eucharist. Who knows why Luke used coin to talk about the fishermen, Simon, John and James. Maybe they were involved in some kind of alternative economy, but even so, even if Simon and John and James had been having a good day out at sea, they still would have had to send their surplus to the empire. That's what empires do. The story of Jesus's acts of power or miracles are visions of surplus that challenge how surplus worked in Rome. Like manna in the wilderness after the enslaved Hebrews left Egypt, I can just imagine how the sudden coming of material abundance that's enough to feed and provide for everyone would have meant something very radical and even dangerous to people living under the boot of a system in which you can't keep what you make, fish, or farm. These are the same conditions that were faced by sharecroppers in the apartheid South after slavery. They're the same conditions faced by farm workers today who are often undocumented. By people in countries throughout the globe whose water and land and resources go to profit corporations from other countries. So that they must migrate to provide for their families. It's true for indigenous coastal people who today still can't access the fish they traditionally fish, limited by policies and threatened by climate change. It leaves you wondering when he's using this metaphor of fishing to talk to people under such kind of pressures, what is Jesus telling these fishermen to catch people for? We know that his message has been powerful and stunning enough and caught like wildfire in the towns he's been teaching in so much that the crowds are pressing in on him. So this is a strategic time for Jesus to get help to carry some of this word for him in this teaching about the kingdom of God. In the lectionary two weeks ago, we heard exactly what this kingdom of God is about, exactly the mission that Jesus is on that he needs help from the fishermen with in catching people onto. We know that Jesus has defined his ministry by quoting the prophet Isaiah from his tradition. In Luke 4.18, which Reverend Ann talked about in the episode for January 27th, Jesus names his calling loud and clear. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. In the story on Lake Gennesaret, Jesus is telling his first disciples, come with me and catch people on to this good news. This news of freedom to the captive and abundance for the poor. And people will come and follow, just like these fish overwhelming the boats. So I did a Google search for Fishers of Men, and it brings me to fishersofmen.net. They're an organization based in Missouri that offers training in person-to-person evangelism. And they've shipped out, they say, over 50,000 in-home Bible studies throughout the world. They train people to lead Bible studies and have pictures on their website of people in different parts of the world getting certified to lead others in evangelism. If you go online to their supplies tab, you can even buy fish hooks to go along with their lessons and homework binders that are available in bulk. The story of Jesus with Simon and John and James at Lake Gennesaret has shaped one of the most influential metaphors about evangelism. Many people often tie it to the Great Commission in Matthew 28, when the resurrected Jesus tells his disciples to spread his teachings to the nations of the world. The dominant history of what it means to be fishers of men in Christianity is laced with white supremacy and colonialism. When the Great Commission has been interpreted as the desperate need to convert people from their own cultures and traditions to Christianity, often under violence or coercion. The powerful vision in the text of people being caught like fish by Jesus' message about the upside down liberating kingdom of God has functioned to support a narrative of domination and christian supremacy of imprisoning people under as paul kivel says the shadow of the cross if we preach this text we have to address that history but i also don't want to leave this text behind to be honest i want to turn people on to what it would look like to, meet, to approach racial justice with the same fervor that Fisher of Men Ministries supplies Bible studies and trains evangelists. Hey, can you imagine us supplying 50,000 families, white families with studies on race in America and about how to organize for justice? Or what if we trained each other up in one-on-one conversations on racism and in leading direct action and building campaigns that change structures in our communities? As white people, we must go fishing for our people to get them in the boat for racial justice. We must catch other white folks up in the urgency of racial justice and the fight against white supremacy. When we bring other white people into movement against racism and for liberation, we bring people into greater touch with their full humanity, aliveness and belovedness in God that is deeper than the false superiority that we get from whiteness. When we bring our people into hope for interdependence, not individualism, into the good news of collective liberation, we bring the same news that Jesus came to talk about when he was anointed to set the captives free. But will we? Will we catch our people? What gets in the way? When I was preparing for this podcast, I looked in the mirror and thought of some of the main things that get in my way in bringing other white people into movement. One barrier is a barrier rooted in fear and egotism. As a white person, I've been conditioned my entire life to maintain racial solidarity and be silent about racism, even when it colludes with my own oppression as a woman, as queer, and as experiencing other forms of social harm. We see this play out when white women vote along lines of race while supporting politicians that are unashamed about sexual assault and sexism. I may not be a white woman who supports these same candidates, but every time I choose not to bring up an issue of racism with another white person because I'm afraid of what they might think of me or I'm afraid I might scare them away if I talk about a racial justice vision or that it will cause discord of some kind. Every time I do that, I maintain the racist status quo and I miss a chance to fish for my people. Humans are also always motivated by not wanting to rock the boat and that's rooted in fear too. If I'm speaking to a congregation and craft what I'm saying based on what the three people I know might object are gonna say or how they might respond negatively, I've just missed 97 people who who could have been moved into action and change. Another barrier I have is rooted in doubt and despair. It's when I don't believe in people enough to bring them in at all. Have you ever held yourself back from speaking up against racism or trying to bring someone along into movement because you thought, "Nah, they're not going to listen." I find myself constantly surprised at how I can sooner write off white, uh, write off other white people than people of color that I organize with do. If the first barrier to fishing for our people is being over forgiving with other white people, letting each other off the hook for upholding racism, the other barrier can be being overly cynical and unbelieving. I think both of these have to do with seeing ourselves in each other. And so we treat other white people. It says something about how we treat ourselves. Either way, both barriers maintain racism. Cynicism is often laced with classism and regionalism. Where I live in Nashville, I often hear folks talk about white people in rural parts in Tennessee the same way that northerners talk about the South, saying, well, we, we hear, we think the right way, but you go out there and good luck making any progress. These beliefs, too, sustain white supremacy. They dissolve the possibility of solidarity between people in urban and rural and suburban areas, between different regions of the country, and they pretend that the problem is those people over there. Writing other people off becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and even an excuse for inaction. It's easier to write someone off for a whole community off than commit to organize with them. It's easier to be afraid and cynical than to believe that if you cast your net deep and wide enough in the work of bringing other white people in for racial justice, people will come. This is the call from organizers of color that inspired the founding of Surge. They called us to stop telling people of color how to get free and to go get white folks and bring them into movement. The call was not... Try to get your people, and if it doesn't work, stop trying. And the call was not, have a couple conversations, and when they don't go well, throw up your hands and say it's not worth it. No, the call was, and still is, go get your people. What will you do with that call? Of course, there are ways to be strategic in casting our nets. It doesn't mean necessarily battling with every internet troll We're going to places that are unsafe for us if we're queer or if we've been harmed by a certain institution or community. But there are so many ways to get people in our lives and our communities into motion. I'll put a couple links and ideas in the resource section of of the transcript. If we don't believe in our people, if we don't believe change and transformation is possible, and if we aren't willing to stay in meaningful relationship to influence the folks that will listen to us, People of color suffer the consequences. I think it's important to also remember who else and what else is fishing for our people. I'm thinking about how white supremacist groups have been recruiting on college campuses, posting flyers up like bait for white men who feel that they don't know how to relate to their identity on a multiracial and multicultural campus. How they're bringing them into a vision of white nationalism as the answer. I think of anti-immigrant language in commercials and speeches and every time a picture painted of immigrants as murderers and criminals, how that casts a net as old as white supremacy itself to deepen a white person's fear and racial resentment. I can guarantee you that for every person who thinks that language is outrageous and embarrassing, another white person gets stuck in it, caught up in this fear vision deep in their bones. Shallow dreams of capitalism that rarely pay out what they promise, those dreams are fishing for our people too. Misery and prescription drug companies that sell opioids are fishing for our people. Inside halls of power and internet forums fascists are fishing for our people. Hannah Arendt wrote that fascism is organized loneliness. I deeply believe that people are looking for places of belonging. Will there be a message of racial justice in communities of liberation that will help them belong, that will catch our people, and that will catch their imagination and make them come alive? So where are we casting our nets? Are they wide enough? Are they deep enough? I fear the answer is no. But what this text from Luke tells me is to not be afraid because we have work to do. And part of the work is trusting that if we cast our nets deep, bounty will come. It may not be in a straight line, but keep casting. story about being amazed when I have felt like Peter in the boat. I've recently been involved in Nashville with supporting people coming out of detention centers on the border. In late October, some folks from Memphis called contacts in Nashville, saying that there were 40 people, adults and kids, on a Greyhound bus on their way through Tennessee from McAllen Detention Center in Texas. That's a detention center you might remember from news this past summer where children were shown being separated from their parents and covered in thin Mylar blankets. Thankfully, these folks on the bus had been released and were on their way to their final destinations in the country where they would meet family and fight for their asylum case. But many people were sick from the hileras or ice boxes or needed help with interpretation to make sure they got on their next bus. After this call came from Memphis, folks rushed down to the bus station downtown in Nashville with anything they could grab from their homes—blankets, medicine, food—to meet those who had recently been released, or to provide some moral support on what had been an excruciating journey and dehumanizing time in detention. The reality was that it wasn't just one bus. Three hours later, an- another bus came, just as full. Three hours later, another. The steady stream of asylum seekers being released from detention and traveling by Greyhound to their destinations is nothing new, but for a number of reasons, including fear-mongering over the caravans, in recent months, people have been getting released with fewer resources to make the final leg of their journey and at a faster pace due to the administration clearing out detention centers on the border to make more space. As some of the initial organizers who responded could not keep going to meet so many buses, they contacted those of us involved with growing a congregational network in Nashville, in which we've built support for people impacted by deportation and under threat from ICE. Within a couple of weeks, we grew from a few people helping out at the station with stuff from our house to over 80 volunteers meeting more than three buses a day, helping with interpretation, offering food and medicine and more. It was amazing. But I was overwhelmed. One of my immediate reactions to being overwhelmed was doubt. When I'm working on any project, I can often want to start very small, often to a fault. It's because I'm worried about whether something will really work or whether people will respond. Or if they do come, I can get overwhelmed because a whole bunch of people are involved. And that means folks are coming from really different experiences and assumptions. And that can be messy and things might not go the way I want to. So when all of this transpired with the response to the needs of people coming out of detention, I thought, we can't sustain this. We better just stop now. I worried, too, if we have this many volunteers involved, we can't possibly be giving folks the kind of political education that we want to ensure can mobilize this kind of base of support for the longfall. And the messaging isn't right yet. and and. And well, as long as it took me to recognize all these concerns, the work had grown exponentially. Supplies were flowing in as word spread and more and more people inside faith communities and outside faith communities with multiple organizations were signing up to go to the station. Before I could even blink, people were responding at a rate I was amazed by. People were not only coming to the station to help, but wanted to help coordinate volunteers and supplies and getting deeply invested and transformed by their encounters with people at the bus station. As I was still putting my pen to ink on all of my doubts, all of these people were getting caught, caught up in this web of connection with folks coming out of detention, caught up in relationship with each other locally as they organized to respond. A few weeks later, there were groups set up in Knoxville and all across the southeast, in Birmingham, Montgomery, Richmond, all in states where anti-immigrant candidates have won in big numbers and where the rest of the country believes that all the folks who hate immigrants live. Suddenly, there were so many people involved that it reminds me of when boats sink in the story of Jesus at Gennesaret, when Simon and John and James are overwhelmed by what comes up after they've passed their nets. Now that the response has been so great, we have a different challenge. We have a challenge to responsibly steward this momentum, to be able to make a bridge and connection for volunteers from harm reduction to stopping the harm, to mobilizing for power alongside immigrant communities. But if my friends and comrades who believed and helped sustain this response had never cast their nets out in the first place, we wouldn't even be here. So as I finish, I wonder who caught you? Who believed enough in racial justice and in you to cast a net wide and deep enough to catch you? What if they hadn't? years or ten years or thirty years from now, I want us to be able to tell a story about these times, as times when hundreds of thousands of white people got caught by a vision for racial justice that they knew they must fight for with their lives. And so my action for you this week is to think about something you're involved with related to fighting racism or that you're wanting to be involved with. How can you bring another white person along with you into that work? How can you cast a net wider and deeper than you already are? Where might people be hungry for getting involved who aren't already plugged in? If you're at a congregation leading activities or, or, or education and organizing about racial justice, how can you spread the word beyond the usual choir? When racism is in the headlines, like when Virginia Governor Ralph Northam's race, Racist Yearbook came out, It's an important time to be able to offer connections for white communities between individual actions to the big picture of white supremacy. To help people with that you can introduce a visual I'll link to in the resources. It's a triangle which shows examples of both covert and overt white supremacy. If there are people in your community outraged or feeling ashamed or horrified about headlines about Ralph Northam, hold space for them to ask, how is what's happening here reflective of racism as a whole, including in ourselves? How is the dehumanization of people and horrific racist jokes like blackface connected to the dehumanization of people of color and policy? And what can we start changing in our communities, and especially with regards to structural issues that organizers of color want us to be moving our people on. In spite of my doubt, in spite of my despair, I believe that many, many white people are waiting for a visionary word that calls them into a higher version of themselves and into deeper beloved community that they may not know how to make real, are waiting for words that Put words into what they can have seen and what makes them angry but they can't quite articulate. Waiting for role models, waiting for people around them to stand up so they can say, I can do that too. I know this because that was me. So if you have the capability to do that, to speak that word and to be that role model, do it. People are waiting to be challenged and called and caught by something bigger and greater than just the daily struggle to make ends meet. They're waiting to be caught by a vision that sets captives free. Thank you for joining me today. As always, the transcript this week will include resources at the end to support your action. Let us know how it goes by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org, and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search for the word is resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. Transcripts are available on our website, which includes references, credits, and copyright information. Our sound editor this week was Maxwell Pearl. Max, thank you so much. Go in power, cast your net, let's catch our people.